Back in the days when the Old Testament prophets spoke to God and heard the angels of God speaking to them. Zechariah spoke with an angel, and the angel gave him a word from God. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit. Now, if you go searching in the context and you decide to read all of Zechariah chapter 4 in order to find out what God meant by that, what is it that will not happen by might or power, but only by God's spirit, you will find it doesn't say. The angel just says this sentence. So I'd like to venture an interpretation. Given the lack of a context there, since we're not told what God is referring to, I would say it means everything. Everything that matters. Everything that Zechariah is being asked to preach to the people happens by the power of the Holy Spirit. You can't do it by might. You can't do it by power. You can't do it by armies or by forcing people. It happens through the power of God. I think this is very important for our tradition because we have this faith in each person, in each person's, person's conscience, which some say is like the voice of God within us, or in just the sacredness of each person's mind and heart. Now, before I go too much further, I just I want to give an important aside. Since I'm talking a lot about our country, I'm talking about our tradition. Our tradition is not a peace church. We are not pacifists by philosophy. Some of us are pacifists, but not necessarily the way Quakers and Mennonites are, for example. And goodness knows this nation is not a peaceable nation. We do lots by might and by power. And sometimes Unitarian Universalists have even backed imperialism to their shame, that belief that some people must be ruled by others' force instead of by themselves. And there's a lot of problems with the way our would-be democracy uses force, both for law and in war. So that is something we should think about and talk about at some other time. I just want to say, I know that. And I, I want to give these thoughts today in the belief that, by and large, we, not only Unitarian Universalists, but U.S. Americans, hold out greater hope for ourselves and all people than that we will be governed by force. And that our aim is to use force, as John Locke says, only 
when all have agreed who are being ruled that we will give this political power over to others. Now, as I said, we Unitarian Universalists, we have a deep faith in the human spirit. Again, some of us more, some less. Some of us more on certain days, some of us less on certain days. We recognize that each person may decide unwisely what to do, how to govern themselves. But we believe no one can decide better than they can. Who could do it better than the person themselves? And so we gather to help each other to be wiser, to gain wisdom, to gain insight, to be more compassionate. That is part of why we gather as a congregation, in the hopes that we will rule ourselves well. But that's how we do it, through persuasion, kindness, learning together, rather than forcing or coercing correct thought. Which is to say, we are a non-dogmatic faith. The principles that each congregation affirms to, uh, promises to affirm and promote, one of which I'm going to share with you in just a moment, uh, they are not a dogma, they are not a creed to which we must all assent. There's nothing that will make you not a Unitarian Universalist, although there's certainly some ideas that you might bring here that will get sharply challenged. Likewise, we are a quite non-hierarchical faith. The people who are chosen to lead this congregation, for example, the board, your minister, they are chosen by the congregation, can be dismissed by the congregation, and have no particular authority except whatever rests in that role with which they have been entrusted for a time. So it is no surprise that we Unitarians and Universalists, and then eventually Unitarian Universalists, made the democratic process one of our principles. This is the fifth principle, if you look in the list, which is uh, up on a poster in our um, entryway, in our lobby there, which is in the front of the hymnal. Um, the right of conscience and the use of the democratic process in our congregations and in society at large. This is a principle toward which we work, by which we are guided. And long before that was approved in the 1980s, many Unitarians and Universalists worked for the end of slavery, which it goes without saying, is, is the ultimate case of denying people the right to decide for themselves what they will do. They have no control over their own fate, over their own bodies, over their family, and where they shall go, what they shall do. And then many Unitarians and Universalists worked for the expansion of the vote to black men, and then to women. And when the vote was denied people, despite what it said in the Constitution, many of us responded to that. Because intimidating people out of voting, terrorizing them out of voting, blocking them from 
expressing their political power, is a use of force. No matter how quiet it is, no matter whether it is a lynching and very obviously an application of force, or it's just the relocation of poles to faraway places that are hard for you to reach. Over and over again, it is the exertion of force, of might and power, rather than letting people express the spirit as it speaks in them, which in the democratic process means one person, one vote. If you're a citizen and you're an adult, that's all it takes. There are 40 names, more or less, on the um, Civil Rights Memorial in Montgomery, Alabama. A beautiful Maya Lin designed um, monument that um, has a wall that has the quote, so beloved of Martin Luther King that we sang a little while ago, biblical quote, let justice roll down like the waters and peace like an ever flowing stream. And then a flat disc where the water wells up and bathes these names, names written along the edge, along with the dates that these martyrs to the civil rights struggle died and a little bit about the incident that brought about their deaths. There are many, many other people, so many names unknown, who died for daring to vote long before the advent of the civil rights movement. And some of those names are recorded as well within the museum that's right there, the Civil Rights Museum. But these 40-odd names are uh, names of people who seem to have been explicitly killed because they dared to vote, dared to register somebody else to vote, they dared to register to vote. And two of those names are Unitarian Universalist. I share this with some trepidation. I don't want this to frighten you out of taking action for voting, to help people vote. <clears throat> but to inspire you. They inspire me. When people um, were planning to march from Selma to Montgomery, led by Martin Luther King and his organization, they were marching to the state capitol to say, you are keeping us from voting and we are going to the center of power in our state to say, we're going to vote. We are going to do this simple, powerful thing to say, it is not by might or power that we make decisions. The call went out to people all around the country, please come. James Reeb was one person who responded. He was a Unitarian Universalist minister and he was walking with two other UU ministers in Selma um, right around the time of the crossing of the Edmund Pettus Bridge, when they were set upon by a gang of white supremacists who beat them badly, and James Reeb died of his injuries. Two weeks later, Viola Liuzzo, who was a Unitarian Universalist member of a congregation, 
uh, and um, resident of Detroit, a white woman, also heeded the call, came down and was serving the cause by bringing people back and forth who were working uh, to register people to vote or who were going themselves to register to vote. And again, white supremacists knew that this was happening on this highway. They were watching for strangers. They saw this white woman driving a car full of people who had been, whose vote had been suppressed. And they shot at the car and Viola Leoza was killed. James Reeb and Viola Liuzzo and the many, many other people, some of whom were injured, many of whom walked away without a scratch from these incidents, um, they were practicing what Gandhi, who was a great inspiration to Martin Luther King, Gandhi called soul force. Satyagraha, it means grasping the truth. He often referred to it as soul force. In order to own, this is a kind of force, but it's not the force or might that the angel says to Zechariah should not be used. It's the force of the soul. It's the force of God's spirit. That's the force that they were bringing to this struggle. To say that, not the war of all against all of which Hobbes spoke. Not the state of nature where everyone is out for himself or themselves or herself. But the law that we put in its place, by which we all acknowledge one another's power, because we are all sacred, that's what we're practicing here. And if you block it, we will be here to unblock it. Those two did it at the expense of their life, but luckily, that's rarely asked of us. Now, the founders of this country knew their Hobbes and they knew their Locke. They followed Locke more than Hobbes. Hobbes, um, Hobbes is, is often quoted, that passage about life being solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. Uh, it's a bit of a punchline. It's a bit of a you know, joke about how bad things are among human beings. But it's really clear that he doesn't believe they have to be that way. He was writing, how can you create a system of government in which that is not our fate? It is not the war of all against all. It must not be, because in that state, the strongest, the mightiest, the one with the biggest fists, the biggest guns, and the greatest will to use them against other human beings, they're going to win. They're going to win every time. And so we're going to set up another form of government. Now, he wasn't such an inspiration to the people who founded this country and wrote the Declaration and so on, because he thought the best solution was a monarchy. And he had reasons for that, but Locke came along, having read his Hobbes, and said, yeah, but there's some problems with monarchy as well, and I'll show you what they are, looking on what was going on in his own 17th century. But I agree that we must not be left to just force of one against another. We need to consent to be governed 
by one another, that is, by ourselves. And when we do that, then we can move beyond this brutal state of nature. Now, a way that we are called upon to do it today is called UU the Vote, among UUs. Of course, it's happening far beyond Unitarian Universalists. We're being asked to look at that whole tradition of voter suppression, voter intimidation, and recognize that's the all against all. That's the each person for themselves. And if we want to counter it, we can help every person in this country vote. It's not happening yet. Since the last time we specifically celebrated this, this push to help everybody vote, we've seen a particular case, a particularly frightening case, of what it could look like if we devolve into all against all. We saw it on January 6th, 2021. Those who say, I'm willing to break windows. I'm willing to burst into the people's house and say, that means it's my house, not your house. I'm willing to say, I don't agree with the outcome of that election in which each person had one vote, in which each person spoke and was heard. I'm willing to overthrow that because I think I've got more force than you. I think I can frighten you. I think I can overcome you. I mean, we've all had elections after which we say, what the heck were the people thinking? We rage and we yell and we cry because how could people be so foolish or unkind to vote the way they did? But we can accept we are not in a Hobbesian state of nature, nor even in a Lockean state of nature. He was a little more optimistic of what that might look like. No. We accept one another's will, even when we think it's unwise, because we believe firmly in the sacredness of each person. And that the only way for us to rule is to rule ourselves. In all the flawed ways we have tried to do that in our democracy, still, as H.L. Mencken said, of all people, I say of all people because Mencken was quite racist and anti-Semitic himself, but he said the only cure for the ills of democracy is more democracy. We need to get more democratic, not less. And so we need to have more people vote for a start. Just for a start, that's not all that has to happen, of course. Caster Fu shared the joy at the first service that his wife, Theda Corns, has been approved as a candidate and is running for local office. That's a wonderful thing that we can do to participate in the political process. So many things we can do. But the very least is to make sure everybody wants to, who wants to vote can vote and to help everybody want to vote. Now, I want to speak because um, people have raised with me um, in other contexts, um, is it really effective to do the things that are you, you the vote leaders there are um, asking us to do? To write letters, send postcards, also to 
do some calling and texting if you're a brave soul. Um, I want to acknowledge that as a registered voter, you may be really fed up with mail, email, phone calls, texts, I don't know, knocking on the doors that flurry all year and build up to a veritable blizzard by election day until on the day itself you probably get three calls just making sure you have voted till you don't want to answer your phone or you pick it up only to say yes, 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 take me off your list. I get it. I sympathize. Uh, you know, it's especially incessant if you've ever donated or signed up for even one mailing list. However, that's not what's going on with a lot of people. A lot of people aren't reached at all. And people who have not registered or who used to be registered but have been stripped from the voter rolls, often unbeknownst to themselves until they actually get to their polling place and are told, you don't vote here, we don't have your name here. Our postcards make the difference often between being counted and being discounted. I'm just trying to think of the, how it feels to live in a country where you didn't get a choice. I mean, I, I guess I felt like that as a kid, but I always knew it was coming soon, and before I knew it, I was 18 years old and could vote. How would it be to be told by the rest of your country, you don't, you're not really an adult, we'll decide for you. It's like being told you're not a person. You don't have that sacred spark within you. We're gonna rule you by force. We're gonna decide what's best for you. So we can tell people, that's not true. You count. We're gonna count your vote. Whatever it is, we don't care. We just wanna make sure you get counted because we have a faith that that is the best way to make our decisions. So, some facts for you. In the primaries last year, voters who received Get Out the Vote postcards were a couple of percentage points likelier to vote than those who didn't. Just a couple, definitely st statistically significant. But if that doesn't sound like a lot to you, consider this. In a town of mid-size, say 25,000 voters, 500 people then voted who had not ever voted before or didn't usually vote. Do that every election cycle, couple percentage. Canvassers who subsequently go door to door are often met by someone who holds up a handwritten postcard and says, did you send me this? They noticed it among the flood of anonymous mail that they get in their mailbox, in their email inbox. This personal touch stood out and they even held on to it. Now there is much more to be done to empower every single adult citizen to vote than what we're being invited to do today, to write some postcards or letters or take them home and become a regular voter. A single policy change can have a greater effect than 10,000 postcards, sure thing. And we should, of course, investigate these and press to make them law. I want to give you just a few examples from someone I imagine you trust. You may be familiar with a, a Yale University historian named Timothy Snyder. Uh, he wrote a short book. He's written a lot of long books. 
He's very scholarly, but he wrote a short, accessible book in the last few years called On Tyranny, distilled from his years of study of the Holocaust and totalitarianism, uh, especially in Europe, that's his area of expertise, but around the world. He has some things to say about voting right here in our country if we want to push back the incursions of tyranny. If we, like many historians who counsel the president, look at incidents like January 6th and are worried that we could return to that state of nature if we don't strengthen our democracy. So Snyder recommends these reforms to counter voter suppression. Automatic voter registration instead of the Byzantine two-step system we have right now. You turn 18, you can vote. A lot of countries have this, by the way. I mean, you turn 18. They, they know when that is, as you know, if you're male and get a little letter from the draft system. You're, you know, it's not like when you turn 16 and now you can drive and you have to prove that you can actually drive. All you have to do is be a citizen and be 18 years old. You can vote. Why put somebody through any kind of step system? Likewise, Snyder suggests no purging someone from the register without contacting them. If you think for some reason they don't belong in this register anymore, you've heard they've moved somewhere else, they should be voting somewhere else, you see a problem with their registration, you get in touch with them. It's not good faith to just let them find out when they get to the polling place that they can't vote that year. Snyder says, how about we prove that voter IDs are for enabling people to vote rather than preventing it? We can do that by handing them out from the start, not requiring them first and then leaving voters to scramble to get one. Again, you turn 18, you get your voter card. There's nothing else to be done. He suggests we have enough polling places that no one has to wait to vote. Lines can be really, really long, especially when we have that very subtle form of voter suppression, subtle but effective, of shutting down polling places so that people have to go a long way and wait much longer. Make voting by mail easy, he says, like it is in our state. Lots of places it is not, however. That opens up options for people who can't so easily vote on election day, gives them a much bigger window in which to vote. And speaking of which, he says, let's not require anyone to work on election day. Let's make it a holiday. Only poll vote workers themselves will have to work on that day. I would add, and emergency workers. You know, it's never possible for everybody to take a single day off. But if you had that vote by mail period, it would be okay that some people didn't find election day convenient. Snyder says, we are addicted. He describes addiction and he says, you know what, we are addicted to voter suppression in this country. We had the Voting Rights Act, the Civil Rights Acts of 1964 and 65. The Supreme Court largely rolled them back several years ago and within hours, within hours, the very actions that led those bills to be passed and signed by LBJ were back in force in Texas, in Louisiana, in Alabama. It has followed. 
He says, we're addicted to this. And you know, since we have never managed to go without it in our 246 year history, I think he has a point. And he says we should do what addicts have to do to recover and call our addiction what it is. And I'm quoting him, voter suppression is racist authoritarianism. It's authoritarianism, it's rule by force. Well, there's something else that we all have to do to overcome our addictions. We name them for what they are, we recognize them, we don't cover them up anymore. And then day by day, little step by little step, we act to move toward health. That is what we are being offered by Linda and Elsa and Anne, and everybody here who, who has uh, engaged in writing postcards and letters. It's what we're being offered to do right now between now and election day, right after our service at these tables, take a little step to let go of our addiction and move toward the beloved community we envision for our community and for the whole world. May it be so. Let us now with gratitude for the gifts of this congregation give what we can. You know, the things that we're doing right now, these activists, the classes being taught right now to our kids, the forum held this morning, every time somebody follows up with a joy or concern by a call from the Caring Network, all of that is made possible because of our giving. That's what our democracy and non-hierarchical structure means. The money doesn't come from anywhere else. It comes from us. Everything we do that needs to support this institution. We try to do it frugally to respect everybody's gifts and we accept, we accept them with gratitude. So if you have received the gifts of this congregation, I invite you to give now to the offering. There's instructions on lots of ways to do it there in your order of service and you can always give cash or a check if you're more comfortable with that um, at the welcome table on your way out. Thank you. So do